From Koningstein Road in the east to Cetus Gap in the west, an orange curtain has descended across the Ojai Valley. This is Ojai Talk of the Town. Hi everyone, this is Brett Bradigan, editor of your Ojai Magazine's The Monthly and Quarterly. This episode, we are in for a special treat. Our guest is Noel Paul Stuckey, who is probably better known as the Paul of Peter, Paul, and Mary. And we go deep into the band and about his connections to Ojai, but the uh, premise, uh, the reason for this episode is he just come out with a new album called Faz Now and Then. Faz is a, was given to him by a member of the Dave Brubeck Trio. It stands for a mashup of folk and jazz. And you're in for a treat. All right, Noel, thank you so much for coming here and sharing this space with me. And uh, you really, um, I feel quite honored. Ah, well, thank you. As I've said many times, at the age of 84, I'm honored to be upright. Well, you are absolutely the most uh, energetic and vital 84-year-old I've ever met in my life. <laughs> well, thank you. So, uh, first thing, first things first, you have a, a brand new album. You said it's been, mm. got put together uh, end of February. Faz, Now and Then, Noah Paul Stuckey. Mm. Mm-hmm. So, Faz, <clears throat> as I understand it, is a mashup of uh, <laughs> folk and jazz. And there's a story to that. Um, you yeah. informally got... Uh, well, we were we were on the road with the Dave Brubeck Quartet uh, during the uh, well '60s. Um, I think between Brubeck and Peter Paul and Mary, we pretty much had the college circuit sewn up. Uh, we were quite popular with that age group, and uh, it was the times in which we lived. Uh, you know, much of what concerned America was now making its. Uh, its place felt in popular music. Uh, yeah. Folk music had always been kind of a poor country cousin uh, prior to the arrival of Blowing in the Wind, If I Had a Hammer, uh, and songs that uh, talked about concerns that we all shared as citizens. So uh, there we were on stage with the Brubeck Quartet doing Because All Men Are Brothers, uh, a song interestingly updated uh uh, St. Matthew's Passion, by, uh, lyrically, oh. by uh, Tom Glazer, who wrote, wow. On Top of Spaghetti, all covered <laughs> with, uh, I lost my poor meatball. But he also, he was quite a lefty, and he wrote, uh, Because all men are brothers, wherever men may be, one union shall unite us. I mean, he was a good, good strong union man. And, uh, yeah. and that was a perfect musical vehicle for the Brubeck Quartet, who had classical training and uh, Dave particularly and That's does, right. <clears throat> I was a big fan and so it was like a dream come true for me to find myself with the trio traveling with the quartet but on stage to introduce the song Paul Desmond who somewhat grudgingly had to admit that some folk musicians knew more chords than others uh yeah called us up on stage and said we're gonna do a song with these people that are uh, with us uh, i don't know whether to call it 
Faz or joke. <laughs> but we all I'm glad they went with Faz. <laughs> yeah, I think so. <laughs> we all kind of knew how what he would have preferred to call it. But actually, the song turned out really well. It's on a Brubeck album. Uh, oh, wow. so, yeah, one of the uh, Brubeck albums that I think he shared with uh, Carmen McRae. And he had a lot of other guest artists with him on this particular album. Yeah, so the term stuck with me. I mean, Faz, what a what a interesting. And I looked at my, you know, sometimes we don't know about our lives until we've been through a few years of it. And I looked at my musical life, and I realized that all during it, I had been fascinated, of course, on one hand by jazz, but creating alternate chords with uh, guitar. Um, if you had if you had a guitar that was in tune, I could play an A uh, for you. Well, it shouldn't be that bad out of tune. If you can, you put this on pause and yeah. Then, you know, so alternate chords. Yeah, it's uh, like a difference between uh, an A major, which this is, and then an A major seventh, which is what this is. It's pretty yeah, subtle. It's brighter. You can hear well. It's got an emotional quality, and that's the thing I discovered. I mean, you could sing any lyric, like, um, I'm talking to Brett Brattigan. In my second story office. In, my, in his second story office. Or it could be with the A major seventh, the slightly sexy, smoky cousin. Talking to Brett back, and suddenly <laughs> there's a romantic element involved. It's, isn't that amazing? Isn't How it? does that happen? Well, I think that the human uh, psyche responds to the warmth and to the um, to the warmth of a chord. One, mm -hmm. and when and when it introduces an element of mystery, then I think it sets our psyche kind of to anticipate. Uh, a story. A story. Yeah, yeah. That's probably a really good way to put it. I'm well, going to put the guitar back. I'm walking across Brent's spacious office here. <laughs> <laughs> well, what I don't get, and you're the perfect person to have this conversation with, is um, his music is math. It's like A440, mm -hmm. 220, 880. Well, it's all that. the vibrations per minute, and yet <laughs> it has this... Now, how is that, that it has this emotional quality that if somebody hears like D minor, they all have that sort of heavy, nostalgic, melancholy feeling? How I'm that sure that if we did a gradient, you could probably discern an emotional difference between an A minor and a D minor. But minor chords in general probably bring about uh, a feeling, I, you know... I don't know. It's very ephemeral. It's difficult to. It's amazing. It's just down. beautiful. Yeah. There's a book. Um, I shouldn't even bring it up because I can't remember the name. But the woman is talking about why we love sad things uh, and how huh. we respond to them. And specifically, she was going through a list of like very sad songs mm. and how much emotional meaning and maybe it's part catharsis maybe it's part mm -hmm. just we enjoy that feeling of sadness it's like we retreat back into our our solitary mm. 
feeling and regroup and, and yet, focus you, on the future. Don't you think that there's a thirst for redemption, though? That we yeah. always, I mean, that's what movies used to be, of yeah. course, it was the happy ending. Uh, and now, you know, even though the endings are not always what we would have predicted, I think we tend to lean towards what was uh, Martin Luther King's comment about the fact that uh, the arc of justice, you know. It was long, but it bends. Yeah, it bends toward justice, yeah. right, right, right. right. Um, yeah, and I think that our hearts are really yearning for a kind of uh, resolution of redemption, if yeah. you will. Yeah. Well, I remember, um, I don't know if you remember, we had a discussion about that Coen Brothers movie, mm, Inside Stuart Lewin, oh, yeah, about yeah. the folk scene, late 50s, early 60s. Uh -huh. Not a very happy movie. No, it wasn't. And, and you said that, you told me that that was not the feeling on the ground at all, that no. there was very much a feeling of, the future is out there, <clears throat> that it's clay that we can shape, and that yeah, you were, was, yeah, I remember that discussion very well. Like, it really, yeah, well, there, you know, I've uh, had the opportunity over the past couple of years to see some film glimpses of me at that time. I'm pretty young, pretty much ingenue, uh, and and a great pretender in many ways because I was just learning about folk music and the yeah. uh, the. <clears throat> the moral imperative that was uh, connected. Oh, that's that's what the quote was. The moral universe is yeah. long, but it tends to bend towards justice. Yeah. Um, the fact is that Greenwich Village was a family. Uh, when you got through with your particular set in a coffee house, you would go to another coffee house to catch somebody yeah. else's set. Uh, yeah. And... Embedded in all of that was the awareness that was rising through the songs of Guthrie and Seeger and the Weavers and uh, Cisco Houston and Josh White. Uh, yeah. That there, you know, there was a real thirst for um, equity. And, yeah. Yeah. Well, it seemed to me as somebody not fluent in that world that it rose from like the working classes of. You know, this mm. oh, guitar definitely. kills Nazis. And <laughs> it was like this great quote from Eric Hoffer, who's one of my favorite philosophers, because he was, nobody's more of the people than him. But he said, America, America's lower classes are lumpy with talent. Mm -hmm. And I really stuck with me. Yeah, like porridge. Yeah. <laughs> it's great. Yeah. So you're one of the key parts of that lineage of taking that, voice and amplifying it and refining it and mm. and here here you are like this is you're you're still doing it still doing it yeah it uh, i have although i must say embraced a larger and more uh how shall i say yeah a larger message i i think it's so easy to get politically warped and come down hard on one side or the other um Whereas I think that's what drives me now, and I think more and more we're becoming aware of it as a peoples around the globe, is love. Um, there yeah. is the only thing that transcends uh, the politics of today. Uh, I just wish that there was some way for Putin to embrace it as we uh, you know, sit at the edge of another day of Ukrainian horror. Uh, that is, to me, the... You know, 
the, the final politic is love uh, because it, it it has no edges. It has just an immense reach. And perhaps that's the reason that music is such an effective way of communicating it, you know, that same emotional unknown quality. Yeah, I think you definitely are hitting on something. Now, you were working on this during the pandemic. Oh, yeah. Well, hey, <laughs> pandemic is what, two and a half years we're into now? Yeah. yeah. Well, how, how was that? I mean, just the mechanics of getting songs made. Are you just sending mm. mp4s around and yeah well to a certain extent i have to admit it was a good process for me because uh one of the first things to go for me has been my memory of uh chords and my ability to uh, perform uh a song without a mistake or without an error and of course you know records are pretty much absolutely perfect gems Nowadays, uh, with editing, uh, you can make it sound perfect. And yeah. I took full advantage of that, recording the basic guitar uh, of many of these tracks in my in a cabin that I've got in Maine. Betty, uh, my wife Betty, and I have lived on the coast of Maine for 47 years and, you know, happily discovered Ojai maybe 20 years ago. Yeah. yeah. Uh, and so, Probably sunnily discovered huh? sunnily. Sunnily, yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> but the recording of the guitar was mostly done separately, then sent to musicians that I've worked with before when we yeah, were all well, live. Yeah, names here. Yeah, Mike McGinnis, and of course, you know, Paul Winter, uh, I've worked with, uh, I was a producer of the first three of the Winter Consort albums uh, that came out when he returned from... Uh, South America and brought Bossa Nova to the Kennedys. Oh, yeah. Uh, yeah, I mean, it was that long ago. And uh, and then Paul Sullivan. Who so was, we can blame that on the Bossa Nova. <laughs> what, blame the Kennedys? I, no, I'm, I mean, uh, there's a Ojai connection to Bossa Nova, but I'm not oh, yeah. going to remember the, the Cor Corcovada. Uh -huh, sounds familiar. I'm not that conversant with the uh, uh, Astrid. Was that oh her name? yeah, yeah, Astrid Gilberto. Her, uh, yeah, Jao Gilberto. Or the lyrics were written by an Ojai man. Ah, and I'm, people are shouting at me right now because I can't remember his name. <laughs> but yeah, he was quite a character. He wrote several jazz books and that uh -huh. amazing song, uh, uh -huh. that Astrid and Jao Gilberto song. Yeah, but I love that quality of music too, the yeah. universality. Yeah, well, yeah. there's a couple of uh, songs that uh, lean towards Bossa Nova uh, that are on the album because it's part of my background as well. I really do love that uh, idiom. Yeah, well, you talk about the emotional tones of, of music and Bossa mm -hmm. Nova certainly just, you can just feel the movement rippling through your body. Yeah, it's yeah. really amazing. Uh-huh. Yeah. Irresistible. Yeah, it is. So, well, let's talk about your um, growing up and how you got into music. Oh, my. Was that like piano lessons when you were age six and so <laughs> forth? Or? No, I never really had. I mean, I had an appreciation of music. My dad uh, had been a drummer, I found out. Uh, you know, when I was in my early teens, I found out that dad 
uh, had been a drummer in his high school. Mom had a good uh, voice. They were very comfortable with music. And so when we would go on business trips, uh, we might sing as a family, you know, like, we'll be coming round the mountain when she comes, you know. Yeah, and, just and, a saloon or a salon type uh, uh, Sunday. Folk, folk music summer. kind of yeah. stuff, you know. And then one, we were singing some song, and it might have been, she'd be coming around the mountain, and my dad went into harmony. And I had never felt the buzz before, yeah. you know, when two voices are singing the same words, but in different tonalities. A fifth apart. Or... Oh, it was beautiful. And I just started laughing. I do it again. Do it again, Dad. I can remember that pretty clearly. Uh, so that became my interest in music. He also had a four string uh, tenor guitar sitting around mm. that he had tuned up like a ukulele. And, you know, for those who are curious about a guitar or, oh, I could never play guitar, it's too complicated, start with the ukulele. It's the one yeah. of the happier instruments in the world. And there's virtuoso ukulele players like oh. Jake Shinabakuro when he does Absolutely. My Ta Guitar Gently Weeps. You're, I saw you will him. weep with that. Yeah, I saw him up in the Santa Barbara Live. Oh, man. That was beautiful. Eddie Vedder did a whole album with the ukulele uh, songs. It's really beautiful. And don't forget Jim Beloff, who wrote uh, oh. the Charles Ives tune uh, that's on the Oh, yeah. Album. I thought found, found that an interesting choice because uh. Charles Ives, I think, is much in line with the Ojai Music Festival modernist music. Mm -hmm. And how, mm -hmm. how did that song come up for you? Like, but, why um, Charles Ives? Well, Charles Ives was a, uh, a geographical neighbor of my former singing partner, Mary Travers, in Connecticut. Uh -huh. And Paul Winter put together an album of Charles Ives music and asked me to sing on it. So there were a lot of things that were calling my uh, calling me into you know honoring uh, the Ives legacy but Beloff was the last one to push me over because it's an absolutely gorgeous tune yeah uh, played on ukulele uh, and the thing I was going to say about uh, somebody considering playing guitar to start on a ukulele it takes three notes to make a chord to define a chord yeah. musically that fourth string on the ukulele is the promise of where it might go. It's what you might call a leading tone. Uh, that you can resolve tone. on any anywhere. Yeah. And so it's a great way to hear colors, uh, to hear yeah. chords. And so the Beloff tune, I, I just fell in love with it and thought that I could maybe add a little bit of jazz to it. So I did. So it became fast. <laughs> <laughs> I love that. So I did. I saw the video. You've already got some uh, videos out there. Fun Police. That was a hoot. <laughs> you know what? You, as a man of letters, I thought you'd appreciate that because oh. the first way, the first thing that I handled was printing all the lyrics on the screen as they were yeah. delivered in the song, and then playing with the lyrics. So that they either fell over sideways, they quivered, they shot across the screen, they yeah. ran across the screen. And then uh, a good friend of mine, Dale Deloy from Florida, is a good animator, I mean, a good artist. Uh, I took his stick drawings or his, uh, his renderings and then turned that into the animated cherry on the top of the... Yeah, well, it feels very au courant because there's a 
a wide streak of scoldy finger wagging going on in our mm. culture today. Mm. Mm. Yeah. Yeah, although I think it's a pretty abstract premise. And, you know, in the face of the Ukraine, it feels like it's really dilettante, you know, to talk about, oh, but I'm having fun, you know. Yeah. <laughs> Who are you to stop me from? But I recognize that there's a deeper message involved, you know, that there is a kind of joy to life, and it is so easy for us to ignore that and then deny yeah. it to other people. Uh, that's by virtue that's of the message ignorance. I was getting. Good for you. Yeah. Yeah. Well, well done, sir. It was really fun. <laughs> so back to your origin story. Now, you are, how did you hit the scene? Because it was it was in the air, right? Pete Seeger was was yeah, out but that and about was, and, yeah, but still the sea. You know, the Weavers were. Uh, I don't know, below the radar pretty much. They had a hit in the late 50s, I think, with Irene Goodnight or whatever. But in the late 50s, I was still into rhythm and blues. I had a rhythm and blues group in high school called, appropriately, because all of the bird names had been taken by the black groups from whom we were learning all this music. So we called our group the Birds of Paradise. (laughs) <laughs> and uh, we didn't use the flower as a, a rep for us. But it had a theme song. The birds of paradise do are here to say hello do do The only way they know do do is with the song and then we play this <laughs> and uh, we were the only game in town actually in our high school in and Bur- is, Birmingham, Michigan yeah and uh, is that Great Lakes no 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 it's uh, about 18 miles northwest of Detroit okay yeah and uh, I took that you know hampered somewhat hampered skill to Michigan State where I was for three years. Then I put the guitar away pretty much. Um, Became a photographic chemical production salesman uh, in New York because I just wanted to get to New York. New York is a fascinating city and uh, so I got a job loosely connected with photography because I had done quite a bit of photography in Michigan. Worked in a camera store. But it was the going to the village to play chess that turned me around because one night I went there and the table that we played chess at wasn't there anymore. They were building a stage and I said, oh, well, what do you have to do to work here? And that would have been probably late 59 or early 60. They said, well, come on in and audition. So in a Van Dyke beard and a three-piece Brooks Brothers suit, I showed up. Oh, wow. Up. That's a good... You can pull that look off today. <laughs> well, it was pretty weird for Greenwich Village in yeah. the early 60s. More of the uh, black turtleneck. And the shower clogs trying to pretend that they were sandals. Yeah. yeah, okay. But anyway, I was weird enough that they hired me, and one thing led to oh, another. I like that line. They, I was weird enough that they hired me. <laughs> Well, that's that was Greenwich Village in the early yeah. '60s, uh, because people would come from all over the all over the city, you know, yeah, from the suburbs, from Queens, from New Jersey, yeah. uh, to see what was being read you know, from the poets, the beatnik poets in Greenwich Village, or what was being sung by the folk singers. Yeah, and there was Len Chandler, uh, you know there. 
there was uh, a lot of uh, Vino uh, Dino Valente who went to write uh, oh, Get Together. Come on, people now, smile on your brother. brother. What yeah. a beautiful song. That was a great song. Yeah. Anyway, a lot of talent in in the village, and I was really pleased to be welcomed there along with Tom Paxton. And, and then this guy uh, named Dylan uh, comes into the guest like Robert Zimmerman. Well, no, his name was Dylan at the time. We, we found out later his, he was born with Zimmerman. Just like we found out later that uh, Paul of Peter, Paul and Mary was born Noel. <laughs> anyway, uh, Dylan comes in, does a guest set. And it's okay, but it's pretty much uh, Woody Guthrie derivative. Very much so. Yeah. And then he, he leaves and he comes back two months later. Only this is a different Bob Dylan two months later. He comes in and he sings a folk song that he's... Re, he's borrowed the concept, but he's rewritten the lyrics. So, uh, and he went to play folk music at a chess club in New Jersey in, during this two-month absence. And there was a folk song about called Buffalo Skinners, where the guy at the end, the last verse, he gets paid in buffalo skins, and he says, what am I supposed to do with this in the real world? And the guy says, oh, well, just go to the trading center, you know, and get anything you want and give him a skin. So that's, he learned that. So when Dylan comes back after two months, he does this thing about getting paid at the chess club and chess pieces. He says, what am I supposed to do with this? And the guy says, well, take it to the bar. So he gives the bartender, he orders a beer, gives the bartender a king and gets two rooks in change. Oh, wow. Uh, yeah. Oh, wow, indeed. You go, your brain goes, does a reset and you said, oh, this guy really understands on a deeper level, what folk music can communicate. So he, yeah. that was the beginning of uh, my awareness of Bobby's genius. And well, I have to tell you, I saw a photo somewhere. Um, this is back early 2000s, this blog that I frequented. And he had a, a photo from a Civil War regimental band, mm -hmm. 1863, 1864. Bob Dylan was there <laughs> in that photo. <laughs> I wish I could find it to show you. It was so much. No, he just looked so much like him that you just get this feeling that he was like the lonesome traveler, the wandering Jew going through history with all these songs. Think about his backup band for a while, the band. I mean, Robbie yeah. Robertson and that crew. They they looked, I mean, they dressed the part. Uh, they sure did. Of the, of the era of the Civil War. Yeah. We're going and through it again, too, you know. I'm not convinced we won't. Yeah. Yeah. I think it's too easy to tip people over in the fear and suspicion. And Yeah. 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 Well, what the world needs now is love, sweet love. Bert Backrack had it right, didn't he? That's, it's that simple. Yeah. And in, in theory. Yeah. <laughs> well, and in practice, you know, uh, it, it was really hard during the pandemic to know that somebody was smiling. You had to get really good at, at reading eye crinkles. Yeah. You know? But now that the masks are off, by and large, at least out on the street, I just find that wearing a smile brings a smile. You just, mm -hmm. you know, because people will glance at the people that they pass on the street. Yeah. And if you're smiling, they go, oh. And I'm, maybe it's oh, hi. But people have a tendency to say, hello, good day, you know, good morning, good uh -huh. afternoon. Even just a friendly head nod. You got it. They yeah. open a door for you. I mean, 
Ojai is a kind of a really wonderful grassroots alternative to the Maine, the coast of Maine, where Betty and I live. So it's really, we live in two wonderful worlds here. Yeah, sounds like it. So we still haven't got to making the introduction to Peter and Mary. Oh, yeah. Well, the gaslight was right across the street from the apartment where Mary yeah. lived. And she would come in to see who this guy with the Van Dyke beard and the three-piece Brooks Brothers suit was doing. She, I think I cracked her up with my sound effects. Uh, cracked Dylan up, actually, you know, to be able to do an American standard, uh, which was a total surprise to me when I was telling the story of my mom having bridge parties and introducing me. And I was so into sound effects, just like Jonathan Winters. Oh, yeah. Yeah, so and awesome. she said my son would like to uh, do uh, something. Uh, she said, what are you going to do? And I said, I want to do a toilet. <laughs> <laughs> and in my in this bit that I came up with in the village, my mom turns to her friends embarrassingly <laughs> and says, my son would like to do a, 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 an old American standard, which, of course, is <laughs> a product name of a toilet. So then I would go... I was getting pretty good at it. <laughs> Mary cracked up. That's brilliant. Mary cracked up and <laughs> struck up a conversation. And I ended up uh, arranging a song for her called Single Girl, which ended up as one of the tunes on, I think, the live album that Peter, yeah. Mary, and I did in the mid-60s. So I met Mary that way. Um, then Albert Grossman, uh, who was managing was manager, Peter yeah. separately, uh, called me over to his table after one of my performances, and I thought, oh, boy, here we go. Because he, he was kind of the Saul Yurok of folk music at the time. Yeah. He had handled Joan Baez and was really, you know, easily associated with Odetta, easily... Uh, you know, I, I figured TV show, I'm going to, you know, and he turns to me and says, have you ever thought of being in a group? <laughs> and I went, ah, well, I got some things I want to do by myself. He said, oh, okay. He didn't press it, but he told Peter that he thought I would probably be amenable to it. So Mary calls me up. I'm in rear. I'm just at my apartment on the Lower East Side. Mary's calling from the village. She says, I got this guy over here with a guitar. Can we come over and sing? Well, that's how you did it uh, in yeah. the village. And so they came over, and we could not agree on a song because folk music, as you may know from my rewrite of America the Beautiful, lends itself to reconstituting, uh, constantly trying to stay au courant with the times in which we live. So. Mm -hmm. So we borrow melodies, we change words, we do yeah. kind of given license to do that. And but the downside of it is that you try to sing a song like the Golden Vanity, it was a folk classic and everybody's got a different version, different yeah. chords, different words. So we ended a up singing experience and context they bring to it. Yeah. So we ended up singing Mary Had a Little Lamb in there three part harmony. And each of us taking a turn on the lead and that same kind of emotional quality, Brett, that you mentioned earlier, that's the mystery of music. Something about singing in a group calls you to yield a bit more than if you're going to sing solo. And the three of us had that. We just automatically... Did you know right away from the 
Yeah, we from can the talk. harmonies. Well, from the yielding, I like uh, to put the, it. The sense of each other's voice. We could sing and listen at the same time. Um, yeah. That's a... That doesn't come in equal doses to a lot of people, but it did seem to come to the three of us comfortably. Just right away. Right away. And Peter said, you know, why don't we just work on four or five tunes and we'll do an audition for Albert. And Albert and his partner, John Court, who used to live in Montecito, actually. Mm -hmm. um, um, And John Court delivered one of his John Courtisms. Uh, after he heard the audition, he said, if nothing happens, you guys are going to happen. <laughs> That's yeah. awesome. Yeah, he was. Well, the way you described the, uh, you know, the working out the edges and mm-hmm. yielding. Yeah. Did, you know, the box well-tempered clavier. It yeah. goes through all 24 notes. Yeah. And huh. if you tune a clavier or piano or anything perfectly, mathematically. Yes. It, it's got a very alien tone Doesn't to it, it. Yeah. yeah. So you have to trim it a little bit here and there yeah. to get everything to fit with each other. I don't know why it just reminded me of that. Yeah, yeah. And like a guitar, too. As you go further up the neck, you have to allow for the fact that some strings are going to go sharp and some strings are going to go flat. Yeah. Yeah. I think that's why I like alternative chords uh, so much. I, I tend not to use what are called bar chords, where you lay your yeah, finger across or, or the... Or a capo. Or a capo. Hey, capo, interesting. Capo would be Italian pronunciation. Of well, I don't know. I'm not very musically literate, so <laughs> I will, will defer to you, sir. Yeah, capo. I like lots of open strings and and in playing some of them way up the neck, but not interfering with the natural resonance of some of them. Yeah, that's beautiful. Yeah, fun. So Albert Grossman, did he know right away that this was something that was going to hit the scene? Uh, he felt that the time for it was at hand, and he certainly was right about that. Did you feel it, like, at no. that moment that this was about to erupt, that there was... No. Uh, no. We, Peter and Mary were definitely more politically oriented than I was. I was just yeah. this kid from the Midwest who was just learning about folk music and just learning how to play guitar and, and could do sound effects. So I was the comic relief, you know, for some of the seriousness. But I came to recognize that music could not only be entertaining, you know, uh, or informative or inspiring, but it could also be informative as well. So that, you know, I, I don't think Albert sensed the enormity of our enmeshing in the message that was going to uh, predominate the media for the next 10 years, yeah. 15, 20 well, years. Till till now, I mean, this is part of the, well, that's the curious important thing. part of our culture. Yeah, and that's the curious thing that I, I think people forget about folk music. Right, you won't find a, quote, folk singer uh, rising to the pop charts anymore like you did, but... Folk music's impact in the 60s was reminding people that music could have a definite uh, commentary on the lives that their contemporaries Absolutely. Living. And that had made its inroads into, well, more obviously, hip-hop and rap. Absolutely. Without question, that is a folk music of the streets. Yes, you got that right. And yeah. also, you know... Uh, 
Paisley's, uh, you know, Prince turning of of country music, you know, oh. to the contemporary and Garth, uh, you know, Prince, rock and roll, Beatles, you know. So folk music's impact was huge in the 60s, not yeah. necessarily stylistically, but more conceptually. Absolutely, conceptually, yeah. 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 Well, another element to folk music that interests me, I had Rhiannon Giddens on the podcast. I don't know if you mm, know who sure. she is. Course, She's yeah. amazing. Really great talk. But she was, you know, I'm a big fan of the Carter family. Oh. Cannonball Run and songs like that. Those are protest songs. You know, Cannonball Run was about McKinley's funeral procession and how not everybody was grieving <laughs> when McKinley died. If you were, you know, in the labor movement or so forth, he was, he was your nemesis. Mm. But anyway, you know how I think it was Sister or uh, Mother Maybell would play the melody with the bass strings and the rhythm with the treble strings. Strings mm-hmm. like she's mm-hmm. self-taught, and that's just the way that she yeah. made the sounds come yep, up. Yep. But she, Rhiannon, told me that was Leslie Riddle that taught her to play that, or no, it was Sister Sarah. But he taught Sister Sarah to play sort of that the Carter Scratch they called it. Uh, and he uh, was African American, and he was part of like every backing band of anyone that was out on tour and. Hmm. Tupelo or Memphis or anywhere. Well, they, yeah, there's still some of those terms like Travis picking. You know, yeah. where, where does that come from? Well, it comes from the alternating thumb, you know, and oh, the yeah. treble strings being played. Yeah, it's these great sounds that people made because they didn't have any classical training or right. formal lessons that they just improvised their way into these great, full, vibrant sounds. Yeah, yeah. yeah. There's some detuning. Uh, Leonard's drop toast. D. Yeah, drop D. Leonard's toaster is a drop D tune. Oh, I'll look for that. Yeah. Any other uh, weird tunings? Or, not weird. <laughs> I shouldn't say weird. But well, I think the strangest tunings. one of the strangest tunes on the album came from a, a friendship I had with Doug Jessup. Did you know Jess Jessup? He sang at a couple of places. He used to live outside of. Oh, he used to live in Ohio. He's now <laughs> living in uh, New Mexico. But he came to me with a song called um, "Waiting for Angels." And I said, geez, Doug, this is so depressing. I said, yeah. I mean, it's really well written, but gosh, you got to do something to lighten it up. And he said, well, what would you suggest? And I said, well, let me, let me write an opening, a middle section, and an ending that sets it up like we're all going to the movies. So I wrote an opening, let's all go to the movies, something to brighten our day. There's one at the Grand that sounds sort of romantic, at least that's what some critics say, and then it moves into this. That's beautiful. Yeah, it's a good setup. It's almost like a Broadway show, you know? Yeah, but it's also like a part of the narrative journey. Yeah, Yeah. so I uh, that's one of the oddest albums uh, because the chords are quite unique uh the uh and the interplay between the sensibility of going to the movies and what you're actually seeing on screen happens in the lyric yeah well i i listened all the way through this i'm just it it does seem to feel like there's uh something that threads these songs together there's some theme or something and maybe it's, it's just it's an added it's an attitude brett <laughs> i think they're part of that like the whole pandemic experience is like you're fighting your way into these partnerships and these cooperations and uh, 
Yeah. Well, I don't think fighting would be not right fighting, thing. but well, yearning. no fight, fight. But we are fighting the pandemic. I mean, we yeah. are. It's this alien language that we're learning, and the ability to rise above it and yeah. connect, do heart connections. That's pretty important. Yeah. Well, Part of the human condition, though. I think we yearn for that. I think it's. I think we certainly learn that during the pandemic. Mm. I mean, I consider myself about. 75, 80% introvert. And yet that 20, 25% absolutely critical, like just mm. being back together with people and hearing mm. live music and mm. that experience it like, wow, I missed that. Yeah. So are you going out on tour? Are you going to be? I'll do a couple of shows, but you know, at my age, I'm not about to, you know, I'm not the about rigors to of the road. It. Yeah. And I've got lovely family. I've got Four grandkids. I've got, you know, uh, matter of fact, I wouldn't be in OI if it wasn't for our daughter in Los Angeles. Well, actually, that's not quite true. When I go back even to the beginning of my visits to OI, it came about because I was at the Santa Barbara Bowl with about a week off, just finished a performance there with about four days off before I went to the Greek theater with Peter and Mary and the Ojai Inn ran an advertisement in the paper that said, stay at our inn, play golf, have a meal, and it'll cost you $200 a night. Well, that well, was a while was, ago. <laughs> <laughs> you can tell, but it, that's what introduced me to Ojai. And I kept coming back with, uh, yeah. with our baseball. Well, that's a great introduction. I think. Oh, it was a yeah. it's a beautiful place. Well, that's interesting. I don't associate folk musicians with golf. Oh, come on. Really? <laughs> yeah, John Denver used to play and uh, Dick Kness, bass player with us. Well, that's that's on me, not on And you. what about Huey? Huey Lewis in the news, right? He's a big golfer. He's yeah. also a big trout fisherman, I think. Yeah. yeah. Him and Henry Winkler. But yeah, that's that's interesting. So, how is your golf game lately? You still uh, whacking it around? Yeah, I I try, but I uh, you know I've I've lost so much yardage now, uh, and yet you know I'm six foot two still. You know my spine hasn't uh, decreased. Yeah, your posture is impressive. <laughs> yeah. So I should be able to get a pretty good arc to the ball. I I need to take a couple of lessons. I'm trying valiantly to get my score under a hundred again. Wow, I couldn't even imagine. I'm good for about three holes, and then the beverage cart comes around, and then I'm done. Like I'll sit there, and it's beautiful to be out there. Yeah, it is, especially beautiful. the Ohio Valley End course. Yeah, and Sewell Park is one of the best Isn't private it? or the best yeah. public courses I've I've ever been absolutely around. absolutely a great test, especially number was it number twelve or yeah, you got to come back across that creek. Mm-hmm. Yeah, oh, that's a killer. Yeah, when I was a, I, I didn't play much golf when I was a kid, but we'd hang out at the golf course and wade in the muck of the ponds mm-hmm. to find the golf balls, clean them up, and sell them back at the clubhouse. And you know, it was fun. Did and you plus, caddy when you were younger? Um, yeah, for my brother, he was a really good golfer. Uh, he was like a three or four handicap oh, golfer. Really? Went a bunch of tournaments, had a hole in one. Woo! Okay. Yeah, he was. Impre- I think it was a. Uh, par three, but still, it was really impressive. But it was just, uh, you know, we were too hillbilly and redneck for country club memberships. But 
you know, they had hamburgers and hot dogs, and they had the two best bass ponds in Chautauqua County were on that golf course. Big old bass, five, six pounders. Oh, yeah. Yeah, so fun. Yeah. Yeah. Well, I did, I did a lot of caddying when I was in Michigan. Yeah. Yeah. yeah Franklin Hills. and uh, Yeah, it was fun. Carry you two bags. You got a You're going to get a workout. Money. Yeah. Yeah. Uh-huh. yeah. So... Um, what else is about the experience of being in Ojai that you find so compelling? Because you've been six months on, six months off, six months here, six Actually, months in Maine. it's more like uh, seven and five, you know, yeah. seven in Maine, five back here. But that may shift as we get older. <laughs> How much yeah. older can we get, Brett? <laughs> well, what is it that you do in Maine that you can't do here? Look at the ocean. Yeah. Yeah. And... uh yeah, it's much more rural life, uh, and we are, you know, that the description that you gave of yourself about the seventy-five percent introvert. You know, yeah, I think Betty and I are very much like that, and we have deep, good friends that, like most people, we made in the community when our kids were of the same age as yeah, their sure. kids going to school. And then, you know, the kids grow up, they go away. You keep some of the adult friendships; the others, you move on. And uh, so in Maine, we'll, uh, you know, Betty used to have a flower shop that uh, would run her ragged and (laughs) keep her really busy. And I used to do a lot more concerts than I will. So I guess we'll just uh, cut coupons and uh, stay in touch with people in Ojai saying, oh, yeah, we can't wait to be back. And then when we get to Ojai, we'll write our people in Maine and say, we can't wait to be back. I bet you don't miss those 100 degree days. Oh, what? Over in here? Ohio, yeah. We don't, we haven't gotten too many of them. There were a couple of them that came by just recently, but, uh, yeah. And we don't also don't miss the uh, 20 below days from me. Yeah. Well, I grew up in Chautauqua County where yeah. 220 inches of snow on average, some years over 300. Yeah. And paradoxically, global warming is creating more snow because Lake Erie, Hudson Bay, those uh-huh. places don't freeze up. So then the, the storm systems pick up more moisture. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, I don't miss that at all. Uh-huh. I'm glad to be in Ohio. Yeah, but people back there love the winters. They love ice fishing and snowmobiling yeah. and hunting, everything. It's like, well, the uh, best, I mean, why Why are there summer people? You know, why? Uh, it's because, I mean, why not just move to a place where it's warm? Well, there's a certain charm to the snow. There's a certain charm to the turn of the seasons. Absolutely. And uh, Betty and I stay there till mid-February, usually, or mid-January, anyway. Yeah, so you get your fill of winter. Yeah, we do. Yeah. So um, going back to the 60s and the burgeoning scene, and like, how much touring did you do in those days? Was it like you come out with an album and then you're on the road for a year? How many days are in a year? Well, there's 365 and a quarter. 300 of them, we were on the road. Wow. I know. And part of that, I was married. <laughs> you know, I mean, it was, they were four-day weekends. You know, yeah. you'd go out for a Thursday, Friday, Saturday, Sunday, back on Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday, go out for a Thursday, Friday, Saturday. I mean, man, it was. And then when you were at home, you weren't at home because there was the interviews, there were the TV shows, there were the... Yeah, promotion. And then sometimes you'd go out for more than just four days. You'd stay out for three weeks because it didn't make sense travel-wise. Yeah. But 
the upside of it was I got to take the family with me many times. We got to know wonderful people in Australia, New Zealand, Japan, France, England. What a life. It was wonderful. And the kids thank us for it to this day. Yeah, because of the experiences. Where else would they get anything like that? Yeah, that really broadened their appreciation of the world and, and the peoples of the world. Yeah. Now, what was it like with the repertoire? Did you... You know, you got to do a few favorites, otherwise, you know, people want to hear that. But you also want to introduce them to new the music, new work. Yeah. And, you know, how do you, where's the balance? And do you read the room? And is it, you know, your playlist gets tossed out? Or what? Tell, tell us about. I think everybody has a different approach. Mine has always been to try to build a story. Very much like, you know, what I try to do when I release an album. Yeah. Uh, the balance is inherent in uh, your what you're finding important in your life contemporarily. And you definitely don't want to exclude that from your performance. Also, you know, to be able to speak between the songs and bridge uh, moments of logic. But you guys were famous for your stage patter. Oh, really? Well, yeah, that's nice. I know that, you know, Peter was Peter taught folk music at Cornell uh, when he was attending there. So his his ability to communicate from stage. Then he was big into sing-alongs and yeah, uh, and that is a whole encouragement that uh, you know you have to learn the language. Yeah. Now, how many? Um, well, many, but of the musicians and uh, contemporaries that stands out for mm-hmm. your in your memory like who do you really enjoyed being on the road with or getting to you know share stage and what you know who sticks out you know i'm pretty insular uh i don't i mean i enjoy the recorded works of yeah. you know sting of bono of uh you know uh, of paul simon um you know, and I will seek them out on the radio. But uh, in terms of traveling and working with anybody, you know, we, <laughs> as a trio, we would sing the three of us the first half, then the second half would begin with each of us coming out and doing solos. Yeah. So we were kind of, <laughs> we were the whole family ourselves. And uh, so I never really, I mean, of course, Paxton was my roommate, you know, when I was in Greenwich Village. And we still wow. we still uh, have contact. As a matter of fact, John McCutcheon's just written a beautiful song called Ukrainian Now uh, that says, I am Ukrainian now. And it's, uh, I'll post that up in the notes. Yeah, do. It's, uh, yeah. There's a YouTube version of it, and then we're slowly amassing a kind of a We Are the World uh, version with oh, a yeah. lot of other artists involved. So people well. are just contributing their pieces. Yeah, and that's very much like uh, the question you asked at the beginning. How do you put something together during a pandemic? You know, yeah. well, you do it virtually, and you do it with Zoom, and, uh-huh. you, and, layers. And, you add, and you add the pieces. Yeah. Very nice. I don't know if you caught that sea shanty craze in the early months of the pandemic. Mm. Oh yeah, no, no, I, I do remember the craze, but yeah, that was a, there was one guy, uh, a baritone, that sort of held it all together, and everybody would contribute against, yeah, you know, the harmonies against that. Uh-huh. Some of them would be like you know eighty, eighty layers deep, just uh-huh. unbelievable. Yeah, but they did. Uh, I don't know if you ever. You're probably not here in Ojai during the Ojai Music Festival because that's in June. But 
Yeah, we hear we hear we we caught one of them, and I think we might catch this one's coming up because we don't leave until the fourteenth. So. Oh yeah, and then so you'll the, definitely like the 12th, be here I think that, it starts, yeah. doesn't it? But a few years ago, they had uh, Percy Granger songs, and Percy was famous for going around the the small villages of East Anglia and Northern England and capturing with those drop-down recorders, the wax cylinders, all oh, the gosh. old folk songs, and then he'd make these arrangements, and they had this amazing, I don't know, remember the guy's name, Beso Profundo singer that was doing, oh. you know, the sea shanty songs, and then they'd have like a, you know, 15, 20-piece orchestra behind them, and wow. Yeah. yeah, just the idea that Percy Granger, one of the most modernist composers, was using these old folk tunes to write these beautiful songs just really yeah that's what i love about the ohio music festival that's where you're going to encounter stuff like that yeah and yeah. with uh you know with the with the uh iphones now and the camera and, uh, and the video and everybody's the, a martin scorsese isn't that true yeah. or can be or can be yeah. and all it takes is a little piece of software and you can sync up Six people shooting the same thing from different angles. Unbelievable. It is. Yeah. So I wanted to talk about your songwriting process because, you know, the the wedding song is one of the most beautiful songs ever written. Aww. And I think that's widely shared opinion. Yeah, yeah, well, you have to, I have to acknowledge the fact that I didn't really write that. Uh, you know, Peter knew that I had gone through a spiritual recharge and uh, asked me if I would bless his wedding with a song and I knew that I wasn't authorized to dispense blessings but I knew where I could get one so I yeah. I prayed this is different than you know most songwriters will say oh yeah the muse got a hold of me or uh, uh, you know they'll give credit to something outside of themselves but this was a uh, deliberate um, request of the divine to make presence known at Peter's wedding. So the lyric came, I am now to be among you at the calling of your hearts. Rest assured so this troubadour. Oh, wow. So this was direct, you know, answer. Now the music, you know, or maybe I, you know, I just followed my heart in that, but the music and the lyric arrived pretty quickly. And I had no idea that it was going to have the impact that it had. Uh, matter of fact, after I sang it at uh, Peter's wedding, uh, we were back out on the road, and the second or third night on the road, Peter came up to me and said, aren't you going to sing the, the wedding song? I said, no, man. That's just <laughs> supposed to be for you, you know, for the wedding. He said, well, okay, I appreciate that point of view, but my wife is in the audience, and she'd like to hear it. Yeah. <laughs> so once that happened, once that veil got ripped, uh, I recognized w what an enormous... Uh, um, endorsement of of togetherness that song is and uh, any, any yeah whenever two more gathered in my name there am I and there is love yeah, it gives great. me chills so that uh, but that's not in a, that's not an example of songwriting so much as it's just uh, supplication you know yeah uh, songwriting is otherwise 
you know, mechanically compiled from snippets. I mean, I say mechanically because you get an inspiration for a four-line couplet or something and you write it down because you can't, can't take it any further. Yeah. Jean-Claude, uh, the song I wrote about uh, the young kids in the Holocaust. It's not on the Faz album, but it's on, a, it's on an album called Just Causes. Um came about, I mean, it took maybe two, two and a half years to write that yeah. song about. Um, and yet, you know, it's, it's a powerful piece. It's also, you know, kind of sobering to look back at the lyrics that you've written and realize that you were prescient by maybe four or five years. You, know? you feel like that? You're, you're, oh, some of the tunes, yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Like I wrote a song called In These Times. <laughs> That I thought was in these times seven years ago, but it's more in these times now, you know. Yeah, that's interesting. Yeah, yeah there's a, it's a bit of a wind up, but this documentary about Dr. August Theremin. And I was looking for a different movie, and this is back in the VHS days, and they had the wrong one in the case, so I ended up stuck with this documentary. And it's a fascinating story because he got snatched off the streets of New York City in 1940 to go work on the Soviets, grabbed him to work on their nuclear program. Wow. And they reunited him, the filmmakers reunited him 50 years later with the love of his life, who was a virtuoso, you know, with a, with a theremin. But they had Brian Wilson in this documentary, and he's just like sitting... It's like they're following him around, and he just sits down and starts plinking away at the piano with one finger, and he's... You know, Brian's odd, odd person. And he's like, turns around and looks at the camera and says, you know, it's hard work being happy. And for some <laughs> reason, that just stuck with me. But there was a really interesting story about uh, his songwriting process. He was yeah. talking about when he was like five or six years old and his parents took him to somebody else's, another couple's house, and they had a theremin. Mm. And it scared him so bad. He had like creeping night terrors for... Years and years and years. Yeah. So he wanted to make a happy so sound out of that to exercise mm -hmm. that childhood demon, you know. To get... Oh, man. Wow, that's Wasn't really that, good. That's good vibrations, isn't it? Absolutely. Yeah. That's why that I song came around. He was trying to get rid of that. The Bad vibrations. Yeah. yeah. But that's about as good a definition of Brian Wilson's genius as I could imagine. Oh, man, yeah. yeah. It was remarkable pet sounds, and that oh. was really, really an amazing album. But yeah. those harmonies, you, you, I mean, you, you're... You well, are every you're, bit as you're, you're talking able. about no. You're talking when you talk about songwriting. You know, you um, you have to divide it. Most people think okay, there's there's music and there's lyrics because that's generally how it's divided when you see credits for it. If you go to a Broadway show or something, but I'm thinking I've always thought that there's a third element, and that's called concept. Because sometimes you'll be sitting at Bonnie Lou's having a, a sandwich and you'll overhear a remark by somebody who says, I wonder why the sun never comes up until about 11 o'clock. And you go, late sun in the morning. Yeah, well, what a nice idea that would be for us. So, now, not that you chased down the guy who said that yeah, to give him a third of the but song, it, but it I try to. Evokes a mood. Yeah, and you may... So it's, it is, well, sometimes the melody follows the pace of saying the lyric. Yeah. Sometimes the lyric sits in the valley created by the melody that you've already created. Uh, matter of fact, 
one of the songs on the Faz album called This Song. If you listen closely, it's the same chords, uh, or more or less the same chords, to a bossa nova classic, or I don't know if it's bossa nova, but it's... So a really old 1940s song by Xavier Cugat and Bing Crosby. I took those chords and wrote a new song called This Song. So sometimes the lyrics sit against the chords that are already there. They do that a lot in jazz, I've noticed, too. Musicians are getting tired of paying royalties to people just because everything they played was impromptu. Sure. So they just borrowed the chords and laid an impromptu tune. And off they go. And off they go. Yeah. So um, you mentioned your faith, and I wanted to have a discussion about that because it's been an important part of your your personage. Now, you were about 30 years old or so, and you had... I don't know if I call it an epiphany or a, a Saul Damascus moment. Yeah, yeah, that would be what quite that like? quite a good way. That was amazing. Uh, you know, my being famous—that uh, is to say, where other people know you on a level that you have no possibility of knowing them. Yeah, and uh, and answering to that is a very complicated series of issues, particularly when you factor in that you do have close friends or a wife or kids that mm-hmm. you should, <laughs> that you would naturally be paying more attention to. And then you get called out of that to be this public person. So my life was pretty much a mess in the late sixties because of my inability to balance all those things yeah. and still being out on the road. Very few people have mastered that. And well, every time I see these, Lindsay Lohan types that fame came early, or even Justin Bieber to some degree, although I think he's figuring it out. Yeah. It's, it's like, it is, I feel for them. It is the figuring out that, yeah. uh, that's critical. Anyway, in the midst of it, I realized I had no, no central belief. Uh, and somebody, you know, was came backstage, said, can I talk to you? And I want to talk to you about the Lord. And in the beginning... You know, uh, one tends to accept the evangelical terms and actually parrot them, you know. So I found myself as a young Christian pretty much offending most everybody around me by churchifying them. Proselytizing. Proselytizing, uh, because I was so happy with this, what I had found. And over a period of many years, uh, I have come to discover the larger truth of the divine, you know, that it's, I think Paul said, you know, God is love. And uh, love is God. It works both ways. That's a big avenue, and that's a big concept. And we all have a piece of the truth, you know, we all see We'll have an avenue towards that center core of love. So that's how the Spirit has affected me over the past, what, 60 years. Uh, I've pretty much uh, have, (laughs) and I had this, it's funny, I had this experience in England. I was doing this concert, and I was a recent convert. You know, maybe I was 
You certainly had the wedding song. I probably had a song called The Building Block and maybe Turn It Over and a couple of evangelically colored pieces of music. And after the concert, I'm standing now in front of stage putting my guitar in a case and this couple is standing there. They look embarrassed, but like they want to talk to me, right? Yeah. The whole audience is filed out. They're still standing. And finally, I can't stand it anymore. So I say, hi. Uh, And they came up and they said, we have a word of the Lord for you. And, you know, you somewhere inside you, when that happens, you go, yeah, okay, these people are either crazy or they might really have a word of the Lord. And they looked at each other kind of nervously, and then the man said, yeah, yeah, we don't know what it means, but um, uh, I think we're supposed to tell you, uh, don't use my name. And <laughs> said, oh, yeah, yeah, like we said, we, we don't know what that means, but uh, good night. Thanks again for a wonderful concert. Wow. That so, left you something to chew on. Yeah, boy, it did. Did it mean, okay, don't talk about me at all? Or literally, like uh, is that Edna St. Vincent Millay, tell it on the slant, mm. you know? So that changed my life, and I realized, right, you have to live your faith not talk about it it's demonstrated it's demonstrated and then if you are going to speak to the goodness of what you've discovered speak to it in terms that everyone can relate to don't don't narrow it down to labels or even symbols you know and that's the path pretty much that i've been on for the last 40 years and it's It's, all over that yeah it served you well yeah. I just realized that I got you a latte and that I haven't shared it with you. Well, you think. Oh, my God. So it's going to be a little cold, but help yourself. Where's the, where's the microwave right, around right here? There. Yeah, I don't, I'm sorry. I don't have that. Uh, but. So um, another thing, and you've been very generous with your time, and I do want to respect that. But I did also want to bring it back to Ojai. And yeah. that probably the easiest person to do that would be Manny Roth. Oh, Because he wow. lived here for years. Yeah, you told me that. I, that's yeah. amazing. Manny gave I didn't me know. my... Yeah, until he, he gave passed. me my, shall I say, yeah, the second job I ever had in Greenwich Village was at the Cafe Wild, which was run by Manny Roth. Yeah. And uh, yeah, I never really got to know him very well. He was a background, you know, player, yeah. owner of this huge corner lot. Uh, I bet you could hold 400 people in the Cafe Wild down in the basement. Amazing, yeah. Yeah. And all of the acts went through there. Paxson, myself, even Lou Gossett, you know, who won the Academy Award yeah. for um, Officer, Officer and a Gentleman. Gentleman. He, he sang there, played, uh, uh, I think he might have played bongos even. Uh, yeah. But I never knew Manny here. Uh, yeah. I didn't even know he was here until I saw something from his nephew, David Lee Roth of Van Halen fame. Uh, my, my uncle passed away at a peacefully at his home in Ojai, California. Ojai, California. I'm going like, and there's a photo of David Lee Roth with his, his huh. seminal figure in New York. I mean, would you call him an impresario? I, again, I'm totally lack of, total lack of knowledge about Manny Roth's credibility. Yeah. I just know that he owned the cafe walk. And he fed you, too. Is that right? You mentioned something. <laughs> yeah, well, he had this wonderful, uh, he had this, he had a wonderful crew. 
that yeah. supported the work there. And yeah, you know, you stay, you work a club at 11 o'clock at night or midnight, you know, you get hungry again. Yeah. And there was Hilda with the eggs and the hamburger. Nice. Yeah, it was nice. All right, sir. Thank you again. Anything, any other? Anything no, it was else really nice. Nice to chat with you. Yeah, right? and you too, yeah. sir. Thank you. Hey, everyone. It's Brett Bradigan, just thinking out loud. Uh, thank you for making it this far. I hope you enjoyed that talk half as much as I did. It's really the best part of doing this podcast is the amazing range of guests that we have. So many people that are of Ojai. And if there's any overarching theme to the podcast, it would be the incredible diversity of talents, kinds of people who find their way to Ojai, different backgrounds, their different experiences. And I've always said that there are as many ideas of Ojai as there are people. But the one consistent theme is the creativity that flows through this place. As evidenced by one of the key members of Peter, Paul, and Mary. And how here we are together. Welcome. It's great to have you. Anyway, that's it for this episode of Ojai Talk of the Town. We'll keep an ear out for you.